I invite you to join me in standing for the reading of God's Word and turn to the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Chapter 12 is where we will be together uh, this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, it is always a useful thing to have one open in front of you as we study and examine it uh, together. So you can take one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby and you'll find this morning's text on page 1034. If you're new to us at Redeemer, we have spent the last few months of the fall in an ongoing series of studies through the Bible's first book, the book of Genesis. And it's a book that announced to us in chapter 3, verse 15, that there is a conflict, a lasting conflict, God said, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And God's told us it's not an everlasting conflict, however, that a time was coming when the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And we turn this morning to a Christmas story in Revelation chapter 12, which announces to us how it is exactly that the serpent's head would be crushed and is crushed even now. And so kids, as we read this today, uh, you might recognize that this is not the normal Christmas story that your parents or grandparents or cousins might read on Tuesday of this week, but it is the Christmas story nonetheless as we're going to see. And so we're going to work our way through all 17 verses uh, of chapter 12, but to highlight the Christmas portion of the passage, let me get us going by just reading the first six verses. And then I'll pray for our time, and we will begin. So let's hear now as God speaks to us through his perfect word. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns, is on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. At Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's bow in prayer together. Once again, Father, we do come to your word knowing that it is full of mystery, rejoicing that it's also full of majesty. So open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from this text. Write it upon our hearts that we might follow you in love and obedience and repentance this week. Help us to love your Son evermore who does rule over the nations with a gentle hand and an iron fist. We rejoice in your provision and protection. Preserve us even this day that we might hear with eagerness that I might preach as you say I must uh, with boldness and love and faith. Uh, We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I suppose that all of us have something unique to our experience, possibly also our personality and history that rings in the Christmas season uniquely for our family, for our lives, 
For some of you, it may be a particular movie that you watch that suddenly announces the dawning of Christmas cheer. Uh, For the others of you, it may be something like the lighting of a Christmas tree, putting on ornaments, raising stockings above the fireplace, hanging them on the mantle. Uh, I suppose even for others of you, it may be a particular family tradition or a particular family dish, particular family meal. And then others of you, it may be the sounds and songs of Christmas. Uh, That certainly is what it is for me. It's not until Christmas music starts playing that it finally feels like Christmas cheer is here. So I've asked people often throughout the past few weeks what their favorite Christmas carol is, what it is that kind of rings in the season by way of a song. And one of my favorite non-Christmas carols is a song, Do You Hear What I Hear? When I hear that, I hear Christmas is finally here. It wasn't written that long ago. It was written in 1962 by a Frenchman, actually an expat who lived here in America, named Noel Regny. It's one of those stories that, or it's one of those songs that has a backstory that often tends to kind of get lost in translation, get lost in history as it takes on some sort of cultural force in our time. Uh, Noel Regny was a Frenchman who was conscripted, conscripted into the German army in World War II as Germany overtook his home country of France, and he was thus made to endure, to see, and experience all the horrors of World War II. And so by the time World War II ended, he was hopeful, he was prayerful that peace had finally dawned upon the earth. He moved to New York to pursue a songwriting career. Then not long after that, the Korean War struck and struck something of a hole in his desire for peace on earth, and time went by, and then came October of 1962. Some of you might remember this acutely in the Cuban Missile Crisis that put the entire nation, in some ways the world, on alert. And it absolutely shattered Regni. Here it was, once again, uh, just barely 20 years on from the start of World War II, that once again the world seemed to be tottering and teetering on the brink of war. And in his fear, in his dismay, in his brokenness, he took his musical pen and put it to paper and penned a prayerful song against the backdrop of war. Do you hear what I hear? It was a a prayer for peace while war was raging. And in many ways, what we're looking into this morning is the Christmas story. It's a Christmas story that many of us know all too well. Or even so well, from Luke chapter 2, the angel burst onto the Christmas night scene. Shepherds are in the countryside, and the angel sings forth from heaven, peace on earth and goodwill to man. But what our text tells us in its Christmas story is it's also a prayer of peace, a song of peace, an announcement of peace that takes place against a backdrop of war, nothing less than a cosmic conflict that enraptures and engages all of the heavenly host. So yes, this is a Christmas story that maybe you haven't heard before, but it is a Christmas story nonetheless in Revelation chapter 12. And whenever we turn to the last book in the Bible, we have to admit that we come to a book that fascinates and confuses uh, countless Christians today. If you're not familiar with the Bible, and even as I was reading the first six verses, and you think about these somewhat bizarre apocalyptic images, uh, know that you are in good company, as many people who are familiar with the Bible read the Bible and think, what on earth am I supposed to do with a dragon with seven heads and ten horns, a woman, a mother who is a crown of stars and the moon under her feet, 
and this dragon seeking to devour the baby and the woman led out into the wilderness for 1,260 days. But what you need to know about the book of Revelation is it is much simpler than we often make it. It is a book written to first century Christians undergoing immense persecution. Apocalyptic images, often bizarre, often strange, are nonetheless plain and practical. And it exhorts Christians to persevere. And so students, what you want to think about whenever you come to Revelation is don't treat it like a puzzle book. And what I mean by that is if you just get the pieces right and arrange it and fit it accordingly, then you can stand back and finally discern and see what is exactly happening in the book. Oh, it actually is much more of a picture book. You're supposed to see what are strange images that have a simple point, a practical point, and a plain point. Because the book as a whole is simply telling us and urging Christians to persevere in their faith amidst persecution because Christ has won the victory. Said a different way, Revelation encourages persecuted Christians to persevere because Christ has won. That's the simple point of the book. Every scene is meant to encourage persecuted Christians to persevere. Christ has the triumph. And those are themes that show up in our text today, Revelation chapter 12, which is, it's the literal, but also the symbolic center of these visions of the Apostle John. One scholar calls it the key to the entirety of John's visions, what we see in Revelation uh, chapter 12. And it announces to us that key gospel truth. Christ came to defeat the devil and save his people. That's the whole point of what we want to see this morning. Christ came to defeat the devil and save his people. So children, if someone asks you, why is Christmas so important to you? Because Christ came to destroy Satan and forgive his people's sins. And you might know that oftentimes the New Testament reflects on the purpose of Christ's coming with this kind of language. 1 Timothy chapter 1, for example, verse 15, Christ came into the world to save sinners. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, that Christ took on flesh, that he might die, and in so dying, destroy the one who has the power of death, that being the devil. Or John, who wrote this book, in his first letter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, Christ came to destroy what? The works of the devil. And so we're going to see that this morning. So what I want to help you understand, what I'm trying to help meditate on together with you this morning, is the truth that Christmas is a cosmic conflict. That the Savior's birth is actually a battleground. That his first advent is his final attack on the strongholds of the serpent named Satan. We're going to see that attack. We're going to see how he wins. And we're going to see what it means for us. You've got three scenes before you. If you glance down at the chapter again, verses 1 through 6 is scene 1. Verse 7 through 12 is scene 2, 13 through 17, scene 3. So I've got three simple words to guide us along. First, agony. Second, victory. Third, fury. Agony, victory, and fury. So scene number 1, verses 1 through 6, the woman's agony. Notice again verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. So you're going to get two signs in this first scene, the first of which is the sign of the woman. Now, whenever you see these symbols in Revelation, you're never going to be able to make sense of them if your mind and heart and soul isn't swimming in the imagery and language of the Old Testament. 
If it is, then you can make sense of it quite quickly. But if it's not, it's going to actually be confusing. It's going to be quite difficult. So what you need to know about this language of the moon and the stars and the sun, it's taken right from Genesis 37, verse 9. Joseph is reporting to his brothers he had this dream. And he saw the sun, representing his father Jacob. The moon, representing his mother. And 11 stars, representing his brothers, bowing down to him, who is the 12th star. And so it's language that's used here for a Hebrew mind, for a Jewish mind in the first century to recognize the woman, the sign of the woman, just represents the covenant community, the church of God. And it's even further proved if you glance down to verse 17, the offspring of the woman are those who keep God's commandments and hold to Jesus' testimony. So when we're talking about this sign in the heavens, the woman, we're talking about the covenant community, the messianic believers before and after the coming of Jesus Christ. And you notice in verse 2, she's in travail, this woman. Birth pains, agony of childbirth. Surely all of you in here who are mothers understand and sympathize with the pain, the travail, the agony that would have marked this sign of a woman at this time. But even the language of pain and agony is language that's often used in the New Testament to speak of suffering and persecution. You have a persecuted people getting ready to give birth to the Messiah is the point of what we see. And there's a second sign, isn't there? A sign of a dragon, verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Now, many of you know we have uh, six young children at home, so you probably are not surprised to know that we have a fair amount of dragon apparel in our house. Dragon focus marks the stone kids. And you might not be surprised also if you understand how this dragon apparel comes into modern-day families, that it often are cozy, cuddly depictions of dragons. One of our kids' favorite book is a New York Times best-selling book, Dragons Love Tacos. <laughs> One of the kids' favorite movies to watch is the recent trilogy, How to Train Your Dragon, with a dragon, Night Fury, who's got the cozy, cuddly name of Toothless. But we know, don't we, that ultimately dragons are not cozy and cuddly. Certainly for a first century person hearing this letter read for the first time, hearing these visions for the first time, would think of dragon and suddenly be summoned to this evil, this sinister, malevolent power. And even the the image is quite strange, isn't it? Seven heads on each head is a crown, ten horns. Well, of course, the seven heads represent his cunning wisdom. The ten horns represent the devil's strong strength. And the seven diadems, seven crowns, one on each head, represents his counterfeit authority, his counterfeit sovereignty. It's why oftentimes the New Testament will speak about the devil, Satan, as one who's the prince of the power of the air, the ruler over this present darkness. And we don't have to guess, do we, at all, that this is the identity of the dragon. Just skip down to verse 9. You'll notice we're told the dragon is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And I suppose in a pastoral sense, what I'm trying to impress upon all of you today, young, old alike, is that you ought to be fearful of Satan. You dare not treat this dragon with casual triviality. 
He is that wise. He is that strong. He is that powerful. But nevertheless, we find faith chasing away fear because the devil's schemes are defeated, as we're soon going to see. Because notice this kind of grotesque tactic he has in verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore the child, he might devour it. Now, the first part of verse 4 is somewhat confusing. The second part is more clear. What does it mean that his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven? Oh, many people have often thought throughout the ages that it's something of an allusion to the third of the angels that fell with Satan in his first sin. But I don't think that's the point at all. Stars in this passage clearly represent saints, the beloved in the Christian community. All throughout the Old Testament, stars are used in this way to depict the saints of God. You might remember in Genesis chapter 15, Lord willing, we'll be there in just a couple of weeks in our study in Genesis. God speaks to Abram and comforts him, promises him offspring as numerous as the what? Stars in heaven. You can write down these references. Daniel chapter 8, verse 10. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. Likens saints to stars. And even chapter 8, stars who are cast down because of the persecution and suffering that evil satanic empires are warring against with God's people. And so the idea here, again, is just reinforcing for us this woman, the church, the covenant community, was in the pains of persecution at the time of Christ's birth, and there stood Satan ready to devour the child. Of course, no more sinister OBGYN could ever be found. Sinister midwife than the serpent, ready to what? Devour the child. The Messiah. And we know that he tried to do that, don't we? You can read later on today, Matthew chapter 2. Through the satanic decree of one King Herod, what was the order? That all of the baby boys aged two and under would be massacred because King Herod wanted to kill the supposed king of the Jews. But the tactic failed, didn't it? Every subsequent tactic of Satan to devour the Christ failed as well. You notice in verse 5, we're told in quite brief compass, she gave birth to the male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So we're right to understand the male child here in this first scene is none the less than Jesus Christ. Again, language taken straight from the Old Testament. We read it earlier, Psalm 2, verse 9. The Messiah would come and he would have in his hand from his father a rod that he would use to break the nations that rejected him, such as the strength of this king. Now, what you need to know is, yes, Jesus was born a child, yet a king. And of eternal significance to you this morning is how you stand before this king. If you stand before this king in trust and faith, you'll find his staff guiding you with love. If you stand before him in rejection and unbelief, You'll find his rod of iron falling in judgment and punishment upon you. So I wonder how you are standing before this king today in belief or unbelief. It's quite fascinating, isn't it? If my count is correct, the latter part of verse 5, you get 11 words that summarize the fullness of Jesus' ministry, his birth, his life, his crucifixion, resurrection, and uniquely, what's it emphasizing? His ascension. You see that? 
He's caught up to God and to his throne. All the tactics of Satan failed throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ. Ask this question then for the original audience. Why would the ascension of Jesus Christ be a unique encouragement to persecuted Christians? Why would his session, his sitting down at the Father's right hand, be a unique comfort to oppressed Christians? Well, it's because his sitting down at the Father's right hand, ascending up to the heavenlies, announces what? He has all authority. He has fought the battle. He has won the victory. To him belongs all sovereignty over all nations. So as these ordinary Christians in the first century have been persecuted under the Roman Empire, they can be encouraged to persevere because Christ has already defeated the enemy. He's ruling over even evil nations. So notice what we're told about this woman, the covenant community in verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. You might know that throughout the Old Testament, the wilderness is often a place of safety and refuge for God's people. A place of miraculous provision when God's people are surrounded by enemies. You can think of the nation of Israel brought out of Egypt, slavery and bondage, brought into the wilderness, and there God miraculously provides for them through manna. You can think of Elijah, the great prophet of the Old Testament, who for three and a half years, 1,260 days, was nourished by ravens in the wilderness. It's partly why, and according also with uh, various passages in Daniel, this symbol of 1,260 days had taken on this unique identity in Jewish culture to communicate a wilderness period of God's covenant people. And what's clear to us in the balance of the whole chapter is that the 1,260 days in which God is saving and nourishing and providing for His people speaks of the entirety of the time between Christ's first and second coming. Therefore, if you are a Christian here today, you are in the wilderness wandering towards the promised land. And take comfort by what verse 6 says, God has prepared that place for you. Isn't it true that oftentimes the Christian life is this sense of being surrounded, encompassed by enemies in all sides, that you're in need, you're in a place of want, you're in a place of desperation and dependence upon God, and you wonder if you can continue to survive or if the need is just eventually going to suck the life out of you starve the spirituality from your soul. But do take encouragement here that God has ordained that holy sanctuary of the wilderness for you and that it will end, do you see that, after 1,260 days, however long that period ends, it will end. So you want to see the woman's agony and then in verse 7 through 12 now, scene 2, the lamb's victory. I think it was six days after D-Day in 1944 that Prime Minister Winston Churchill made a snap decision to visit the front lines in France. And one of his MPs raged about the foolishness of such a decision, saying the Prime Minister should not risk his life unnecessarily. Was there ever such a good target as the one presented by our not inconspicuous Prime Minister perched up high on a jeep? Nobody can mistake or miss that massive figure complete with cigar to identify him. But he, of course, rejected all of the counsel of those who were wisely saying it's time to stay home, and he went on this six-day journey to the front lines. 
And what we get in verse 7 through 12 is a six-verse journey to the heavenly conflict, the front lines of the cosmic battle for the ages. For notice verse 7 and 8. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So children, you want to understand the picture right. This is the war of the ages. This is the conflict of all redemptive history. On the side of good, you have Archangel Michael and all the forces of heaven. On the side of bad, you have the archdemon Satan and all the forces of hell. And battle rages. And Satan is conquered. He is thrown down. You notice the end of verse 9. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. This accuser who stands before God, stood before God, day and night to accuse God's people. It's why Paul can sing forth such gospel truth in the book of Romans chapter 8. There is now for, now therefore, no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. The end of the chapter. Who then will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And if you see this passage rightly, you notice that John, in this vision, God, by giving him the vision, isn't interested in telling us when this conflict took place. He's just interested in us knowing that it took place and that it had the victorious outcome that it did. When did it take place? Well, maybe it was at the cross of Jesus Christ, Colossians 2.15. It says it was there at the cross that God disarmed the forces of evil and triumphed over them in His Son. Jesus seems to maybe even allude to it in his ministry. Luke chapter 10, the preaching, the apostolic preaching of the gospel. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And whenever it was exactly was, the point that we need to see is that the victory has been won. For notice verse 10, John hears a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. So you need to have a right theology of Satan's strength. You need to have a right theology of Satan's identity. The word Satan just means accuser. You know, it's why even sometimes when our children are accusing each other, I have no problem saying you are being satanic. It is quite true. To accuse one another is just to be satanic. It's a synonym for accuser. That's what he lives to do. Condemn and accuse God's people. But the gospel and the good news here is he has a place no longer before the throne to do it. Where the accuser once stood, Christ Jesus now ever lives as our advocate before the Father. In the courtroom setting that this surely was there in the heavenly court, it's as though Satan was bound He was cast out of the courtroom and held in contempt. No longer is he allowed to accuse the brethren before the Father because Christ, our risen, exalted Savior, he is there to always mediate and intercede for God's people. So it's a text that's not interested in when the conflict took place. It's a text that's interested in telling us how the conflict came to its conclusion. Christ won the victory. It does tell us, though, doesn't it, in verse 11, how exactly that victory came about. This Lamb's victory over Satan. And there's just two things you want to see from verse 11. First, it's a victory because of blood. And they have conquered him, that being Satan, by the blood of the Lamb. You know, I mean this not to 
put some sort of strange image before you, although it seems quite appropriate in apocalyptic literature. Every person will one day swim in a sea of blood. If you reject Jesus, you will swim in the sea of your own blood as you are judged for all eternity in punishment. But it's the Christian's victory to swim in the sea of Christ's blood. As the old hymn says, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Or there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. I wonder if you know that fountain because pay attention to the pronouns of verse 11. It doesn't say he has conquered him by his blood. It says they have conquered him by the Lamb's blood. I hope you are included in the they of verse 11. Those who are glad to be underneath the cleansing flood that is Christ's blood to wash away all sin. That's how you know the victory is found in Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb. Secondly, the boldness of testimony. You see the end of verse 11, they've conquered Him also by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. You understand how much of an encouragement this must have been to the first century audience, many of whom were enduring martyrdom? For the sake of Jesus Christ, because of their testimony in Jesus Christ, here is the victory. Your continual trust in Christ, even to the point of death. We don't live in a context, do we, where any of us are facing martyrdom. But we do live in a context where you're going to have to sacrifice something to cling to the word of Christ's testimony. And true faith is willing to lay down everything to follow Christ, isn't it? This is the one who is my disciple, Jesus said. He must take up his cross, follow me, and deny himself. Do you know this blood? Do you have this boldness? And you can understand why the heavens are rejoicing in verse 12. Somewhat surprisingly, maybe, is how the earth is told to tremble as a result of the Lamb's victory. Notice what they sing in verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down in great wrath because he knows his time is short. And so we move to the third scene, from the Lamb's victory to the devil's fury. He knows his time is short, so greater is his wrath on you. The first home that Emily and I bought was across the street from a neighbor who had bought his just a few months before ours. It was one of those homes that he bought as a foreclosure. And evidently, after the foreclosure notice was given, the eviction notice was, was pending, uh, what happened inside that home is what often happens in such situations. Uh, the previous owners just tore apart uh, the entirety of the inside. And in a similar way, what the remainder of our text tells us is Satan recognizes he has received his eviction notice from heaven, and he's ready then to tear apart the earth, more specifically, Christ's church, with greater fury. Look at verse 13. When the dragon had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. It's like he's given up his scheme to try to get and devour the Christ, and so he's after now the church. And you get these gospel conjunctions we often talk about in here, the sweetest one of which is the three-letter word, but. In the midst of all of his rage, in the midst of all of his fury, in the midst of all of his evil passion against the church, notice verse 14 begins, but. The woman was given the wings, two wings of the great eagle, that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. 
to a place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. That's another way of speaking about 42 months, three and a half years, 1,260 days. Uh, kids, do you know of any time in the Old Testament when famously God was said to carry his people on eagles' wings? The most famous time was in Exodus chapter 19. God has redeemed them out of slavery and bondage, brought them into the wilderness to Mount Sinai where they are going to worship and serve Yahweh, hear His covenant, hear His commands. And He begins that section that's calling for the preparation to come and meet with Him by saying in verse 4, Thus you shall say, Moses, to the house of Jacob, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. It's only on the wings of God's protection and provision that we are sustained in the midst of this fight. So what I want to do as we uh, begin to close and finish out the passage is let the remainder of the text bring two things to mind about this fight that is ours in Jesus Christ. Because you recognize the victory has already been won, but the battle is not yet over. To come to Christ is to be enlisted into His army. To come to Christ is to be a soldier in His heavenly force, striving in the spiritual battle that is ours until He returns or until we die. And how can you fight rightly? Well, two simple truths from the remainder of the passage. First, you just need to see God will preserve His people in the fight. He will carry them as though they are on eagles' wings into the place of safety in the wilderness. Some of you might be afraid of flying that's a flight I dare not want you to ever be afraid of. Trusting in Christ who will take you on the wings of His Spirit to safety in the wilderness where you're to be nourished until the time has come. But even notice we're told something in verse 15 about Satan's ongoing scheme. We're told the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. It might seem strange what's going on here in verse 15, but if you recognize how this kind of action is used in Revelation, it makes sense real quickly. What comes out of someone's mouth in Revelation depicts their words and their nature. So, for example, the previous chapter, Revelation chapter 11, talks about these two famous prophets, and from their mouth comes fire, such as the prophetic word of God. More famously, you know, Revelation 19 maybe, Speaks of the Son of Man's return. What's flying forth from his mouth? A sword. Of course, he's not coming back with a literal sword, but it is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, that comes from his mouth. And here, kids, picture it. A serpent, a dragon, pouring forth water from his mouth because he wants to drown God's people. And what is abundantly clear in the course of Revelation is what pours forth from the enemy's mouth. His ordinary tactic is falsehood that would flood the faith of God's people. False teaching, errors, lies, deceit. This is the ordinary way that Satan tends to war against God's people. Therefore, if you don't understand what it means to be rooted and grounded in truth, to be meditating and feasting upon God's word, to know the centrality of preaching, study of scripture in the Christian life, you'll recognize that it's going to be hard to withstand the flood, the torrent of lies from the evil one. But God will protect His people. Look at verse 
16, the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Again, there's this Old Testament imagery. You, you might remember the Egyptians are swallowed up in the Red Sea. It's the rebellious sons of Korah in numbers who are swallowed up by the earth as they have opposed Moses, God's chosen redeemer. God will protect his people. God will preserve his people in the fight. So some of you might be weary. Some of you might feel as though you're fighting a spiritual battle that there's no way you'll ever win. Perhaps you can even think about it this week. Satan has come to you with a temptation or a trial and you gave in yet again. And he says, how dare you think that you actually love Christ? Because Christ said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. If you love me, you will hold fast to the word of his testimony and you don't ever do it. We have to gird yourself, don't you? with the full armor of Christ, recognizing that God provides a way out always for His people in the midst of Satan's trials and temptations. He protects and preserves His people. I wonder if you're clinging to His protection, if you're running to His door of provision in the midst of temptation. Number one, God will preserve His people. Therefore, number two, God's people must persevere in the fight. They must persevere in the fight. Notice verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Why is it for the centuries since Christ's birth and subsequent ascension that Christ's people have endured such hardship, such suffering, such affliction and tribulation in the world? Why is it still that countless Christians, much more than we ever remember and recognize, are losing their lives for their faith in Jesus Christ? Because the dragon wars against the offspring of the woman. Who are they? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Do you want to know how you persevere in the fight? It is really that simple. Keep God's commandments through the help of His Spirit, holding fast to the testimony of Christ. You'll see how the Chapter ends where said this dragon is standing on the sea. A sea that we know from the next page in Revelation 13 will give forth, this beast will burst forth from the sea. And it's in a, a war, it's a conflict that leads to this constant chorus you find in Revelation, highlighting the point I'm making. If you notice verse 13 of Revelation, I'm sorry, verse 10 of Revelation 13. It sounds forth this refrain of, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. You must persevere in the fight. Because God will protect you in the fight. You can have great faith that you will participate in the Lamb's victory. He came to defeat the devil. He came to save his people. He continues to provide for his people that they might persevere in the fight. So Noel Regney, he wrote this song. In one verse, you might know, it sings about this song high above the trees. We do know high above the trees in Israel in the night that Christ was born, the angel sang forth a song of peace on earth. Our text is telling us that's not the whole story of Christmas. There is also a song that you need to hear, a song of a conflict that has swept up the heavenlies with the coming of Jesus Christ. When you hear the baby crying in a manger, you hear his first and final assault on the serpent named Satan. When you hear the good news of great joy, you hear good news that God will protect you in the fight. 
that you must persevere in the fight, that the Lamb has won the victory. That's what I hear. Do you hear what I hear? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies who's fighting for us even now in our time where we are gathering together to hear from you. We rejoice in your protection. We cry out for your spirit to help us to persevere. May we be confident in the fight, bold in the fight, comforted from Christ's victory that he has spilled his blood once and for all, casting out the evil one. So give us joy in Jesus, we pray. Trust in him, steadfastness in the fight. And we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let us stand as we want to sing in response to God's word.